Salam, salam. What's up, everybody? It's Omar and just me. But today we're going to be checking in uh, with Ali Latifi to start off our podcast. And then we're going to follow that up with the audio from our most recent Facebook Live discussion, Motherland Reports Part 2. Uh, and we check in about what's going on in Afghanistan and some of the recent developments happening. A lot happened in between the time that we recorded our Facebook Live. So we check in with him to f- uh, fill in on what happened. And then we're going to go ahead with the Facebook Live audio. So hope you enjoy, get to listen, and don't forget to follow us, review us, and like us on Facebook, IG, wherever you find us. Thanks. The Samivar Network. The Samivar Network. Hey, Ali. So we wanted to get a chance to chat with you today because... Since our last Facebook Live discussion, there's been some recent developments. Uh, the Taliban were invited to speak in the U.S. and uh, Ashraf Ghani was also invited to speak at Camp David with Trump. So uh, there was that whole issue and then Trump decided to call it off on a tweet. So I wanted to just kind of check in with you just because it wasn't something that we that had happened at the time of our recording. So I wanted to ask you, what does it mean that Trump was willing to invite the Taliban and Ashraf Ghani to the U.S.? Um, I think it means that he was fed up with the way that the nine rounds of talks were going, that for whatever the deal ended up being, that he wasn't happy with it. And he wanted to take control of the talks by inviting them both directly to Camp David. And then because, you know, he likes the show it's kind of this idea of look i brought them to camp david where the camp david accords went through um and that i made the deal right around 9 11 because the the rumors we were hearing was that he was going to make his announcement on 9 11 as sort of like his symbol of ultimate victory of of doing what bush and obama couldn't oh wow um yeah so so that's why i think he just wanted to take control of the whole thing and so then he just, but then he decided to call it off on a tweet. Right. Like, what what happened, and and what does that mean for then for the talks moving forward? From what I hear, he wasn't satisfied with the agreement because he felt like Zamai Khalilzad, the negotiator he sent, was was giving too many concessions to the Taliban, and there were a lot of people around him that were saying this is not a good deal, that were saying, um, you know, you can't accept this, you can't approve this, you, your your name. Will, will be tarnished in history, you'll have admitted defeat. And so whoever it was that was able to convince him, they convinced him to go back on it. And obviously, again, you know, he loves a show. He loves going online and making these big statements. So he went on a Twitter rant and, and he had a great excuse because he, he made this statement on a Saturday. And if I remember correctly, the Tuesday before is when there was an attack where 11 Afghan civilians were killed in one U.S. soldier, and so his excuse was like, uh, oh, one of the U.S. soldiers was killed, so that's why I'm calling it off. And the last night we had the Democratic debates, and <laughs> the, I don't, the, I don't think Afghanistan was discussed much, but a lot of folks were talking about, you know, more than More than previous debates. Okay. Um, and, and the one thing you see between all of the debates is that pretty much every single candidate on the Democratic ticket also agrees that the U.S. needs to leave Afghanistan. And they're all saying that within the first 100 days or so of their potential presidencies that they would end the war. So again, this is um, this could be something that scares Trump because let's say one of them wins the election and they end up ending the war, they will have done what he couldn't, right? What, what he promised in his campaign. Um, and like I said, he loves the show, so he wants to be able to say that after 18, 19 years, I was the one that, that you know, did what two other presidents before me couldn't. And now that the talks, well, the talks in the U.S. were canceled, uh, what do you think is going to happen moving forward? It's hard to tell because the U.S. has essentially just two options, well, three options at this point. One is to basically withdraw without a deal, which I think would actually be really bad for them. 
um, PR-wise. The other would be to go back to finding a new way to negotiate, something where they feel like it's maybe a little bit more even and not all the concessions are made to the Taliban. And then the third, which is what they're doing right now, is just to keep fighting, to, to, to say that they're just going to keep attacking the Taliban, which, which, which is exactly what the Trump administration is saying right now. But they have 14,000 soldiers here. Um, mm. Obama had, at one point, 100,000, and he couldn't take them out. So it, it would be quite shocking and surprising if Trump could do it with 14,000, not to mention that that's not how insurgencies work anyways. So, I mean, we're talking about it in like politics in terms of, you know, yeah. what's going to happen politically. But what is it? What is all of this going to mean for the people on the ground in Afghanistan? What are they saying about this and how are they feeling about kind of the process of the out outlook of peace moving forward? Well, that's the question, right, is that uh, from the beginning, the people and the government were not involved in these talks um, and they had no idea what was, um, you know, being discussed or what might have been discussed had Camp David actually happened. Um, and so I think it's more a question of, you know, how much longer is this war going to go on? Um, you know, pe people want an end to it. And I mean, supporters of the president are happy because, you know, the presidential election will go on and they have a chance at winning again. But the average person, um, is fed up and is just wondering when a solution will come. Like, what what is what will it take for an actual peace uh, to be brokered, and what will it take for you know all of the proper sides to be at the table? Um, it's just essentially just another frustration. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you again, Ali, for chatting with us to about the recent updates, and uh, we hope you all continue listening to. The Facebook Live discussion that we had just recently where we talk a little bit more about all of these things and talk about the attacks that happened recently in Kabul. So would love uh, for you all to continue listening, share, share your feedback, thoughts, and let us know how we did um, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. The Samivar Network. The Samivar Network. Right, we're we're going to launch right into it, right? And um, I think the first thing that all of us sort of wanted to talk about maybe or should talk about is the recent attack, um, the most recent attack in Kabul uh, at, at the wedding. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, what folks' reaction to that is um, in the context of the peace negotiations and everything that's been going on. Um, so I can I can kick that off. Uh, so with the wedding attack, um, I think for me personally, I have family that still um, live in Kabul. So anytime an attack happens in Kabul itself, I'm definitely, um, you know, messaging cousins and messaging aunts and stuff. My mom doing the same to make sure that everyone's okay. Um, and it just so happened that this time around with the wedding attack, um, you know, it was in a uh, Shia neighborhood of Kabul, um, and it just so happened that my aunt's cousins husband uh passed away in that attack because he was a guest at that wedding so um you know it, these things happen so far away uh, right we're you know we're living here in the united states but there's definitely a very strong emotional attachment and emotional tie to these attacks when they happen um you know my mom's cousin lived close enough to where the attack happened where the windows of all his um the windows in, in his house all of them just shattered when the attack happened so it's like um, in a way, like you're far removed, but also at the same time, you're very much connected and, and very much, um, going through the emotions of such a trauma. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's like my firsthand, um, firsthand experience with that. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, it's interesting because when I read about the attack, I was actually at a family wedding in Vancouver, uh, oh. And it was sort of the same time. And, we, you know, similar to weddings we all go to, there was a lot of um, aspects that were very traditional and nods to our culture and our heritage and our history. And to wake up the next morning and realize that people were going through that very same thing. Uh, and then their experience obviously ended in tragedy um, was really sickening. And I thought also it, it was interesting because some of the responses to the attack were fascinating. And Halima, you mentioned that it was in a Shia neighborhood. I think that's a very important point that, uh, frankly, I don't think about enough. Right, is why. Um, but I also thought it was interesting that, that the, for example, the Taliban condemned the attack, right? 
I sort of just had that response. I was like, what world am I in? Right? Because like a week yeah. earlier or 12 days earlier, they had attacked outside of a police station in Kabul, right? And killed, I think, 14 people or something like that. So uh, it was really sickening. And, and it was sort of the timing was odd because I was in that wedding space. And then to read about that, it really just, I couldn't imagine what it was like. Hey, and uh, I hope my audio is working now, but um, uh, I guess I wanted to ask, um, Ali, you're in Kabul, and I just wanted to hey. hear from you about sort of what was your reaction and, and when, when, the, when that attack happened, and what, what, what happens to you as someone in Kabul, like where do you, what, who do you reach out to, what, do you, what is that like immediate reaction when it's, when it's like close by? Um, I mean, a lot of times it's, it, it's kind of, you know, you, you read about it on the news or you see it on TV. Um, because even though, so the attack, I, I went to the wedding hall two days later, um, the attack, you know, it took place maybe about like 20 minutes from where I live right now. Um, but you can get kind of, kind of so caught up in things, you know, and, and, that's what I'm saying is, is like something can happen and, and even though it's in the same city, it's only, you know, a short distance from where you are, a lot of times you just end up finding out about it either by the nature of your job or, you know, someone texts you, are you okay? Um, that, you know, that, that kind of, there's something really odd about that. Um, so, so that's how we found, I found out, um, I think it was it was just through the news, you know, like uh, that they were saying that there was this attack near Darlamond. Um, and obviously we have to remember that that was two days before the celebration of the 100th anniversary of when Amman Law took us from bringing a British protectorate, essentially like independence. And then so two days later, I went to, um, uh, I couldn't go the very next day because I got caught up with, um, you know, like different media outlets and things like that, asking for, for video reports and, and, and like. And then um, so the next day I had, had to write another story about it. And I actually went to um, the wedding hall itself. And it was actually really small. It's actually probably like this, one of the smallest wedding halls I've ever seen. Um, and it's kind of, you know, hit because police station um it's near the the Darlamon palace and, and near the parliament so if you're not going because it's not on the main road it's kind of off to the side um and then so i went and i talked to people there i talked to people who attended the wedding i talked to security officials i talked to people who lost people in the wedding um and by all accounts it seemed like the the attacker actually missed his target he was trying to go straight keep going forward uh and Basically, because so this was Saturday night and Monday was big independent celebrations. So he was planning to try and hide out and then attack the independent celebrations. Didn't make it. Turned back around, saw that there was a wedding, saw that these guys were coming back from the Nakah and kind of just went in there and, and detonated his bomb because he didn't make his actual target. Um, so... That's sort of the level it's at. And the thing is, like, that's really scary because, you know, these, these weddings and so like if a wedding in, in the U.S. is um, 200, 300 people in Kabul, it's like a thousand people. Um, and, and these wedding halls usually only have one entrance and exit. Um, and, and that was exactly the case in this. I mean, I know, Ali, that you're a journalist, so obviously the way you're sharing it with us is not, like, intentionally, um, what do you call it, emotionally disconnected, but it's interesting as I hear you talk. I kind of feel, in a way, like I relate to even the style that you're talking about it, because I think, and I don't want to speak for everyone in the diaspora, but I think what was maybe sad to me about this is that we've gotten so used to so much of this violence happening to Afghanistan on the daily that it's almost, I don't want to say it's unsurprising because tragedy is never something that you expect, but it is unsurprising how much, um, how numb kind of I, I felt in a way in response to it. It's almost like, uh, like one of my grandparents was in hospice care for the longest time. And so 
uh, our family was kind of, it's never easy losing someone, but you're kind of in a space of contentment with the situation because you understand it's a process and you're just waiting for the next thing. It's not like anything comes to you as a surprise anymore. And I think, I mean, even just what you were talking about and how you're sharing it, I kind of felt like even in my own experience of this attack, I was, I was like, wow, we are, I mean, at least I still felt so numb. Like I expect this almost like this is not anything else. This is is one of many, you know, attacks that happens on like kind of the daily such that our PTSD is almost normalized. I don't know. That makes sense. No, no, no. I, I think I, I guess I, I came off wrong. Um, yeah. I'm also kind of tired. <laughs> but yeah, no, 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 no. Six a.m. There. No, no, no. It was, it was, um, it was a huge deal because, yeah. like I said, like, like these weddings, it's like a thousand people that go, right? Um, and they're in these giant, massive, gaudy wedding halls. Um, and it, it's really like for ninety percent of people in the city and in the country, it's really the only outlet you have for like fun and for dancing and for getting dressed up. And so the fact that that kind of an event was, was attacked, whether it was intentional or not, or whatever the actual details were that in itself really, really scared people. Um, and it really upset people because it's like, well, now I can't even go to a wedding and and feel, uh, safe. Um, and it was, I mean, everybody was talking about it the next day. I was, um, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, like bragging or whatever, but I was, I was, I was doing some like video reports for CNN and I like, we were the whole time, the whole crew, that's all we were talking about is like, I can't believe they made it into a wedding hall. I can't believe they made it into a wedding. Uh, and so no, 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 it, it was a huge deal. It was a big, big deal. I'm sorry, I was probably tired. I was just trying no, to... No, 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 I know, it's... Uh, yeah. Totally, that's fine. I think, uh, I think, Ali Joan, like, you, you hit on a really good point in the sense that people in our culture, like, weddings are such a big deal. It's such a time of happiness and celebration um, that we look forward to it. My cousin, who lives in Kabul, recently just got engaged, and, you know, his mom and dad, the the... His fiance's parents, they're trying to plan this wedding in Kabul. And then when this attack happened, they were just like, all right, we're cutting these plans. We're not going to do it in Kabul. It's likely because we have some family in Pakistan that we're going to end up doing it there. And and this, you know, I've never been back to Afghanistan. So this wedding, for me, I was like, this is it. Like, I'm going to go to Kabul. I'm going to, like, enjoy this wedding of my cousin, finally meet everybody. And now it's likely because everybody's just so shaken up because of this that it's not even going to be in Afghanistan. So, like, that's, you know, at least for me personally, like, some of the immediate reactions and just um, a heightened level of just being scared, you know? Like, a wedding is not safe. Um, Neither is, like, schooling, all these other places of celebration or or education or anything like that. So um, it's definitely, in in many ways, heartbreaking, too. And... um we we all I feel like a lot of times when these really big attacks happen um, we start to see it on social media we see it on in different places but do you do you feel like we pay we only pay attention to Afghanistan when there's like some really like big tragedy Um, like for those of us in the diaspora for those of us kind of like outside of uh, living there like I feel like, does it feel like sometimes things kind of catch on on social media or like when we're talking about it with our friends and things like that? And then uh, is it sort of ignored the rest of the time? Uh, I wonder what you all think about that. I mean, I feel like we, 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 we learn about things when we're told about them, right? And when we sort of find out about them. And I think one of the issues in the diaspora and I'm responsible and, and, and sort of guilty of this is like where we get our news and how we seek out news versus just being um, receptacles for news in the U.S. right now. Ali does a ton of reporting. There are other folks who are there doing a ton of reporting for non-U.S. outlets. And I think the way they report actually is very different than how the U.S. reports because what Iman's talking about in the sort of the stoic detachedness, right, the commonality of all this uh, is, is like reflected in the reporting, right? And so I think as consumers of reporting, we end up kind of taking that on. So Omar, I think to answer your question, I think one of the issues is like, we just, we don't find out because we don't go looking for the news in the same way that I think other people do. 
Um, and then the other point I wanted to make was I think we also I, I felt there was like a lot more outrage, for example, around um, Trump's comments about wiping Afonson off the map, which actually really, you know, is not a possibility. Right. There was a lot of outrage and social media activity and, and all this stuff going on. And people were like taking up arms. But when there's actually a massive attack, right, where people are killed in this very violent and grotesque way, I, I saw so much less of a reaction. Right. And so I wonder if that's because people feel more helpless in, in responding to that or because of um, what Iman's talking about in terms of us being like, yep, that, that's what happens. Right. So um, but we're going to fight the good fight anyway against Trump. I think then uh, sorry to step in here, but I think there's an interesting thing. I kind of like in my head, I call it like detached attachment that the diaspora has uh, with Afghanistan, where it's like. If you think about it, the, for the one and a half and second generation, one and a half generation means you were born somewhere else and then you came here as a young child and were mostly raised here. So for most of us who did not spend the majority of our adult lives in Afghanistan and are here, our lives are predominantly have been defined by Afghanistan and a state of instability because it's been post-1979 Afghanistan, you know, from the Russian invasion onwards. So... It's it's almost like we have this conception of Afghanistan that has really been defined by its constant state of instability. And so that's also a defining feature of how we know our country in contrast to um, a lot of these almost like, uh, for those who don't know, I my dissertation work studied the Afghan-American community. And a lot of um, the community kind of described what they know about Afghanistan as kind of like a fairy tale-like thing um, that their parents or the elder generation would share with them, right? So it's almost like you have this fairy tale vision on the one hand, and then you have this other place that you'd only know as defined by these major features of instability, insurrection, um, constant, uh, you know, basically all this constant fighting and the things that are happening. So it's almost like we have an attachment on an emotional level that we can't explain, but a detachment in a in a way that we haven't experienced it, a lot of us, we may not have gone back to Afghanistan, we may feel like we don't fully understand it, or we don't feel like we um, are entitled to lay claims to this place because we're in a more privileged position than a lot of the people that we feel emotionally attached to. So it's, I think that's kind of a lot of the reactions and things that I witnessed around it. I think how I rationalize the reaction that you're talking about of more Afghan Americans being up in arms about Trump than this attack at a wedding was more because I think they felt like finally this is something in my backyard that I can take action to. And I feel like I am allowed to have ownership over versus something that happened to a place that I'm emotionally tied to, but I don't, I just don't know what to do. And I feel helpless about, I don't know. I don't know what you guys all thought about that and that reaction, but that was just my take on it. I think part of the problem is that uh, it's actually not you all's problem. A uh, big part of the problem is with the media itself. Like, so I, I was saying earlier, um, the next day I was so, like I had CNN call, I had the CBC in Canada call, I had Deutsche Welle in, in Germany call, and Al Jazeera all at once. Um, asking for either like video or text reports, which is why it took me an extra day to actually go to the wedding hall site. And that's completely rare. Um, there have been, uh, Yusuf was saying that there was an attack a week earlier, which is true in, 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 the, in Kabul as well. No one called that day, you know? Uh, it took something this extraordinary for all of these networks to call and, and, and want information, to want stories to want video reports to you know i mean like on those two days i i was on almost every major network in the world but look at what it took to get there right mm. uh for instance like when trump did say that thing about like killing 10 million people in afghanistan no one asked you know no one called no one no one cared even though like media loves to bash trump right because like that's the worst thing in the world to them at this point is trump's in existence um you know, or when he rewrote Afghan history and said that we were somehow sending quote unquote terrorists to, to, to the Soviet Union, um, didn't get any calls that, I mean, there were so many different things that happened that no one in the media ever called or cared. 
Um, so in a way, it's not entirely, you know, if, if, if someone like feels guilty or whatever, it's yeah. not really, um, it's fine because of the fact that it's not being covered. People, the media doesn't care. Ali, what was, uh, I, if I could ask real quick, like, uh, were people talking about the Trump comments about, like, I could, I could wipe off oh, yeah. Afghanistan off the map and, like, I just don't want to, but I don't want to kill, like, 10 million people. Like, what, what were people in Afghanistan saying? And then I want to ask some of the, like, what, what you were hearing kind of in the diaspora because I know, Yusuf, you had a, a, a viral post uh, <laughs> around that. Um, at first, people said there's more than 10 million people here. <laughs> so we didn't know if we thought he thought the entire population of the country was 10 million people or he would somehow, um, you know, like select 10 million people to kill. Um, so there was that. And then there was a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. I still think that in terms of like high level response, I think Hamad Kazai gave, gave a good reaction. I think uh, Ramatullah Nabil, the former uh, intelligence chief who's running for president gave a good reaction. Unfortunately, I think our current government didn't do very much. They just asked for clarification and issued like a little statement, but then said like, oh, by the way, they say they're committed to their so-called South Asia strategy. And the one thing we have to remember is that uh, in like the first couple years of Trump, the the, the like well-to-do people of, of, of the urban centers of Afghanistan were in love with the guy. You know, they were saying things like, uh, he's bad for his nation, but he's good for ours. I mean, you would find translations of uh, him and Ivanka's books in, in, in Dari and Pashto. Like there was, there, was, there was a girl who translated one of Ivanka's books into uh, Pashto, I think, and she was like, oh, she's a good role model for women. Oh. <laughs> And uh, there was a lot of people like kind of buzzing about the about the Trump comments. So I, I don't know what you all saw and sort of what your reactions were to that. Uh, I, I guess I'll start. Um, look, I, I think the reaction that that triggered me was um, a lot of people sort of adopting this like narrative of like, oh well, you go ahead and try it, you know, and it's the graveyard of empires, and you know, I'd like to see American troops in Afghanistan, and I'm just sort of like looking around, being like, like, where have you been the last 20 years, right? I mean, like, I mean, I haven't been to Kabul in like a very long time, but you know, from what I remember and what I hear, like, you can't get away from the, the U.S. presence. Now, you could probably speak to that firsthand, so. I thought the reaction was really interesting and problematic in ways I haven't really figured out yet because um, people really up in arms and ch pounding their chests and sort of acting like they were going to finally, you know, stand up for Afonsan or the people there or the people who are being targeted or whose lives are being dismissed. Um, but I sort of thought it was really hollow, you know, um, and so I got really frustrated with, with that. I think for me, too, um, the term like graveyard of empires, because I saw I saw Yusuf like the tweet that you put out, and I saw you know across social media, um, this kind of like proud, um, like Yusuf says, like you know, being really happy, like proud of, and and trying to say that oh we're the graveyard of empires. Look at all these past nations and and um, you know imperialistic. Um, countries or, or, or forces that came into Afghanistan, they tried to take over our land and, and all this, but they couldn't. And to me, it's kind of like, it kind of is like, well, look at all the violence that the country has has gone through in, you know, the past, I don't know, century. Um, you know, like all these invasions and all these like nonstop, um, you know, occupying forces that come in, try to take the natural resources of Afghanistan, try to take this, the land that they find um, that they find valuable. So I think part of the response to me when people were responding with, well, we're the graveyard of empires, I understood how it was meant to be framed, but I think I just find the term a little bit, uh, you know, disturbing because I feel like there's so much more that we can talk about with Afghanistan and not something that's just tied to violence. We've already seen so much tied to violence in the last two decades. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you, Halima. I think the the frustrating thing that it sounds like we're all kind of feeling uh, in reaction to that is this thing that Afghanistan's legacy is now being changed to something that we may not... Um, I don't know. I don't think anyone wants us to think about Afghanistan as 
just this place that's known as the graveyard of empires because we all know that there's so much more to the legacy of Afghanistan, to the Afghan people, to what defines us. And unfortunately, it's almost like we're buying into the narrative that's being portrayed about Afghanistan. It's only relevant in relation to tragedy and violence. And so when we talk about our reactions to it and we fall back into talking about it in that scope of tragedy and violence again as the only hallmark of Afghanistan, then it's like we've lost all beauty of what this nation of peoples are. You know, I there's so many um, characteristics, there's so much rich history, there's so much that we offer, you know, even just the generosity of Afghana, we take for granted maybe because we grew up with other Afghans or our family members who shower us in this and that way, but I mean, it's really a very unique hallmark, and those are not things that you heard people kind of responding back with. They didn't respond back with the the character of Afghana as you interact and meet with them on a daily basis. Instead, it was falling into those tropes again of Afghanistan being relevant in relation to tragedy and violence. Yeah, and it also kind of made me a little, um, I guess, discouraged because I think, you know, we're taking a lie off the ball, right? I mean, the, the conquest that Halima's talking about, right, exactly about minerals and extractive industry and people raping and pillaging, for lack of, you know, a better term, I mean, that is happening economically right now, arguably, mm-hmm. right? And so I think when people have this conception of like, well, you know, the, the framework is either war or not war, right? We're being invaded or we're not being invaded. Well, can we talk about China? Can we talk about what's happening with the minerals and the resources there and the agreements being signed and infrastructure and, and all the foreign influence from Pakistan and India, right, in ways in which, like, people can't conceive that, like, in, you know, that are just as potentially destructive and invasive as a foreign army, right? And I think that's what really discouraged me is I saw a lot of really um, high-minded, sophisticated people falling back on this trope that Iman's talking about and, and not sort of saying, okay, well, let me take a moment to think about, like, what does empire look like today, right? Yeah. And so is it a graveyard of empires or has empire just made off on a graveyard, right? Mm. For Afghans. Uh, and so what can we do to sort of push back against that? Yeah. And it, I don't know. I kind of feel like I get it though. Like when you're, you're like, it's sort of one of the, there's not always a lot to, or when, when you, when you grow up in the U.S. and you constantly are bombarded with all this negative imagery, you kind of hold on to things, right? And so, like, this whole, like, graveyard mm-hmm. of empire things is, like, this easy thing to latch on to. So, uh, for me, like, I always was like, oh, yeah, like, well, you know, graveyard of empires, like, nobody can mess with Afghans, this and that. But then, like, you know, it took, it took some people to really open my eyes and, like, you know, explain, like, how that can be an issue and kind of problematic. Um, but it was, I mean, it's hard because when you don't feel like you have a lot to hold on to, You'll take anything you can get, you know, and you think that that's kind of, you know, this really great claim to fame sort of thing. So, um, well, Omar, I wish yeah. I wish we were we were able to hold on to more, right? I mean, because mm. there is a lot going on today that that I think is reason for hope and reason for pride, right? Not the least of which is like this entire generation of like um, like entrepreneurial, innovative. Um, educated, driven people who are trying to like steer the country in the right direction, like whether through journalism or government or private sector work or whatever, right? So I guess like, and maybe this is the question that we don't have an answer to is like, what should we, what should we be holding on to now? Right. And I think there is stuff to hold on to and to embrace and to, to kind of um, bolster. Um, and I think that's where maybe our community can pull together and identify those things, uh, even if they're just themes uh, and then get behind those. Well, also because this whole idea, this whole term, the graveyard of empires, didn't come from Afghan. Mm. Western mm. imperialism. Right. It's a British term, no? Right. It's, 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 it's an imperialistic term by nature uh, that was given to us. Yes, it's like we kicked you all out, but um, it's still us taking something that was created by someone else, you know, and, and sort of made to um, uh, make, make, make us look a certain kind of way, right? Um, and so I think that so much reliance on that phrase um, is, is, is problematic. And it's also not a phrase 
I mean, I don't even know how you would say it in that he like Emperor Tori, something like that. Like, it doesn't come up. What people do say, like, yes, my son, in the Sarakashidem, Busarakashidem, whatever. But this whole idea of the actual, like the actual term graveyard of empires, doesn't actually come into existence very much uh, here. The idea does, but not so much the term, because again, I think it's a Western created term. I think I'm definitely hearing um, something that just made me think of the really famous line from the kite runner that everyone always quotes um, for you a thousand times over. That's the line that they always quote from the book. And that really is just in Dari, you always hear your mom say to you, okay, which literally translates for those who don't speak Dari, uh, for Bachem is my child, means a thousand times. Like that's kind of the spirit of Afghans in a way, are those sorts of, um, the Zarbo Masal that we have, Zarbo Masal means like um, analogies, metaphors, um, the way that we speak poetically, but kind of to what you guys are saying that there's a, a disconnect for us as Afghan Americans. And I can't blame everyone here either because, I mean, I grew up in Ohio. I mean, a lot of us grew up, even if we grew up in an Afghan communities, we're kind of drawing into thin air. I mean, I'm fortunate for the opportunity to be in a privileged position to have gone through an academic route of reaching out to learn about Afghanistan, but not everyone has access to that per se, right? But I think um, I really like what you're proposing, Yusuf, that we do have to find a more positive way of creating the image of our community and kind of attaching to it. And I think we do have those things through, I mean, I mean, how popular is the kite runner, right? And something as simple as Azor Dafa is really a defining feature of our country, but we still fall back to the graveyard of empires, I think, um, because it does become a popularized trope. And I, I think we just have to push each other to do two things. One, find those positive attributes of Afghanistan and Afghanistan and our history and our culture that we can um, encourage each other to learn more about or teach each other about or attach to more or highlight more. And two, to have the courage as the diaspora to allow ourselves to lay claim to those things. Because I think a lot of times as a diaspora community, you kind of feel like, well, who am I to say that this is what Afghanness is? This is just what I call it. I don't know if it really is. Am I being a fraud? Am I authentic? How do I really know? You know what I mean? I think that there is a lot of this kind of like, I'm not sure if I can truly lay claim to it or not, you know? I feel like one of the things, or, or there's a handful of things that I feel like as not only um, the children of Afghan um, immigrants that came to um, America, but also as Afghan-Americans, um, there's all there's always constant themes that brings it, bring us together, right? Food, music, um, you know, all these other things that, Afghanistan just has such a rich history of. Um, for example, there's this entire project, I think, that's being funded out of Canada, and they're trying to restore old film from, from the film industry in Afghanistan before the Taliban destroyed a lot of it. And there's this amazing story of this, um, you know, one or two men that essentially risked, risked it all got as much film reel as they could, and they, they like, buried it under, under the ground. Um, so that they could save it so that the Taliban would not burn it. And so now the project is to restore all this old film. And so, um, you know, we have like, you know, this is something that we could get behind and, and support. There's an Ahmad Zoyer documentary, I think, fundraiser that I saw recently. Um, so I feel like in, in us trying to grab onto something and holding onto something, I think the easiest thing is Graveyard of Empires. But if we dig a little deeper... And the things that we love so much about our culture, there's something out there for us to support or just be in the know of and, and um, just, you know, enjoy all as well. You know, these are the things that we grew up with, with our parents or grandparents listening to or talking about. I think there's an opportunity there for us as, as a diaspora um, to support. And Halima, I think, um, I think that's exactly right. And I would just add to that um, sort of, the reinvigoration and like highlighting of the history is the forward-looking piece, right? 
Because, I mean, for example, I'm not an expert in this by any means, but I have some familiarity with, like, the technology sector. And maybe Ali has much more enough on Stan and, like, what percentage of the revenue, uh, you know, of the government's tax collection comes from that industry. And a couple of years ago, that was, like, 10%. You know, hundreds of thousands of jobs being created in IT, for example. And I'm not saying that we have to be India or the Philippines or something else, but I think there are these things happening in the country, right, that probably we don't get to hear about that are a tremendous source of pride and probably building blocks for all of us. So in addition to what Halima is saying in terms of, highlighting what we've already done. Um, I think if there's a way to kind of figure out what's being done right now, that would be seen as exciting and interesting and new and separate from the, this narrative of war, um, we'd have like a pretty good base, right, of what to build on. Can I add one last thing before we um, kind of transition to another topic? I think it'd be cool. I don't know if you guys saw the the Twitter the, um, thing that had gone viral when there, the Palestinians were like, explaining what is a CT, what's your grandma or whatever. If we just did something simple like a viral campaign of hashtag Afghan attributes or, I don't know, somebody else come up with a cooler hashtag, that would literally be like everyone just share an anecdote of something that's sweet from Afghanistan that you know about, your Afghan family, your Afghan something, you know, something like that. I'm like, why don't we just, why don't we just get it trending, you know? Mm-hmm. Your Afghan BB. so so we've been talking a lot about just kind of how do we counter that narrative of war and uh some of the the violence that's happening in afghanistan and i think these are really awesome ideas uh and i i think one of the things that's coming up a lot uh is the is the peace talks I'm, i'm reading about so um you know we're it's, it feels like there's this, like, we're, we're, like, in a constant state of war. And it's, like, for most of my, like, my life, I've never known anything outside of that. I've never known Afghanistan to be anything outside of that. So um, there's apparently these talks that are happening that are supposed to bring this, you know, peace between the Taliban and, you know, and Afghanistan and, like, calm things down. So what are, I mean, are, are people talking about that around you all? And, like, what are some of your impressions around that and what... And what you're hearing, especially, you know, from those of us that are sort of, again, from the diaspora, but then Ali, on your end too, like, um, would be, would be interesting to hear sort of what you all are taught, what you're thinking or hearing about that. I think I'm curious to hear Ali's, if you don't mind telling us what things are like on the ground. <laughs> um, so it's a big question, like what, what, in terms of how people are reacting, it's a big question of what is actually going on with the peace talks because they're essentially happening behind closed doors in uh, Doha and Qatar, right? And then the Taliban have been invited to Uzbekistan, which is ironic because there isn't religious freedom in Uzbekistan, but okay. Um, and, and, and some other places. Um, and, and this is really... Like, if you look at it from sort of like a news angle or a political angle, if you pay attention, they keep talking about two issues. One is withdrawal. Trump announced part of one just, you know, last night. Um, And then the other is this sort of myth of the Taliban providing like a safe haven to to foreign terrorist groups and their ability to stage attacks on on, on U.S. interests. Um, And it's constantly, so it's been nine rounds of talks. And it's constantly the this is this is the two points they keep talking about, and neither one of these points have anything to do with the Afghan people. Um, the Afghan government is not part of these talks, uh, so so the talks are really by and for the United States and the Taliban. Um, that there's not really a third party, meaning the Afghan people, uh, included or involved in it at all. And will it's basically one of those things, you know, we're still waiting. The agreement's supposed to be signed. You know, they've been saying it for a couple of weeks now, any day now. We're still waiting for it to be signed. When it's signed, we'll know what's in it. Um, and then it's also because there's an election coming up, presidential election at the end of September. So now every day people are asking, is the election going to happen? Is the election going to happen? Is the election going to happen? Um, so, so this is sort of like the situation around it. Ali, if I could ask a question, how do you yeah. think, how do you and how do the people in Afghanistan, how do you think they grapple with that much uncertainty in terms of, one, the peace talks, quote-unquote peace talks, and then the upcoming elections as well? So this is, this is exactly, 
the I mean, it's not entirely new, and I'll get to that in a second, but it's um this is exactly the problem because literally every day this is what people are asking, right? If you go to like the store, it comes up. If you go see your family, it comes up. If you talk to other journalists and even to politicians and things like that, it's it, it's this really sort of odd state of waiting, um, and and it's quite frustrating, right? So so like the two most recent examples were in 2013 when Obama announced uh, a foreign troop withdrawal, the U.S. started and everyone else followed, and there there was sort of this fear of what would happen. And then at the same time, again, there is a presidential election coming. The presidential election turned into this whole fiasco about corruptions of allegation on all sides and all these people cheating and everything. And the U.S. had to come negotiate uh, what is now the national unity government. And those negotiations also took place behind closed doors. No one knew what was being said. No one knew what that agreement said. If the president and the chief executive signed the agreement, and people still didn't know what was in it until later that day. Um, so it's not entirely new, but I feel like this is probably like the biggest example of it. Yeah, I think um, uh, so. Like, I, I grew up right in, in New York City and during the Soviet um, after the Soviet war, and I knew Zalmay Khalilzad's name because like how many prominent Afghans are there, right? Like in the eighties, like you just like, so he was like a mythical figure, like a couple other ones in our community. And throughout the years, like, I've become a little more cynical about him, but I, I think it's it's very problematic because I think folks one to at least point probably assume that he has any interest in what happens in Afghanistan for the Afghans, which is not yep. you know, technically or probably otherwise true. Like that wouldn't be his job. And somehow the fact that he's Afghan makes a difference, which I don't think is, is true. And then two, I think um, it, it shocks me that we could have a, this conversation about peace talks and correctly someone could refer to the Afghan government as a third party. Like, how is that possible? Right. And that's how this is structured. So I think I think it's a cynical move by the U.S. And I'm only speaking for myself, no one I work with or work for. I, I think it's a cynical move by the U.S. And I think at the end of the day, like what I'm finding interesting is reading um, accounts from women, for example, Right, enough on Stone about what's going to happen to them uh, if these talks kind of end up with a peace agreement that effectively leads the U.S. U.S. withdrawing and the Taliban, who hold, I think I'm right in saying this, more land now than they have since 2001 in the country. Right, um, what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to religious minorities? What's going to happen, um, you know, to, to people who don't want to abide by certain codes that the Taliban want? Um, I, I, I just it worries me, and I feel like where I'm seeing value in the coverage is actually from the minority groups enough on Stone and representatives of those groups in the U.S., because I think those folks are, like, really tuned into what could happen. Other folks, I think, are just thinking, yeah, peace is good. Yeah, great. Peace is good, right? And I think that that is very dangerous. I think um, for me, just to quickly add, um, as, you know, as a person with multiple identities, right, an Afghan, Afghan slash American, as a Muslim, and then as a Shia Muslim specifically, I think for me, there's a lot of just skepticism with all of this. Um, you know, we've seen throughout the years um, the havoc that the Taliban has caused um, to the larger Afghan community in, in Afghanistan itself, um, but then more specifically to the minority groups in Afghanistan. So for me, you know, having the Taliban having this essentially almost like a free reign to to decide whatever they want, whatever they think is within their realm of like Islamic principles and, and all that. To me, it's just very worrying because I think and, and, you know, we've seen before that the cost of that is just escalated attacks on minorities, um, restrictions on women um, and, and all of that. So for me, I just personally, there's a lot of skepticism and I just I don't see this faring well for the most vulnerable vulnerable groups within Afghanistan. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Halima. And I think um, I share a lot of you guys' frustrations, uh, exactly what you just said. One, what's going to happen to the minority groups? And I think, um, and maybe this is an aside, but even just when we talk about the Taliban, People talk about it in a way that Taliban is synonymous with Afghanistan, as if they came from Afghanistan, were created by Afghans, and are funded by them, which is, I mean, we know is completely not true, right? And so 
it's almost, I mean, the, the slap in the face is already there by what Yusuf said, that Afghanistan is being treated almost like a, a third-party side pawn piece in these quote-unquote peace talks or whatever you want to call them. Um, but the slap in the face is even more when you think about the Taliban aren't Afghan. They're not, uh, they're, they're a force that has been terrorizing us. Yes. But, um, it's, it hurts even more when it's like that the name of this group that have been our terrorists are also becoming synonymous with our identity now. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know if I'm taking that too far, but, um, I also, just to add to that, I hate, and this is the last thing, I hate that it gives so much legitimacy to Mm -hmm. a group that has caused so much terror to our country. So I I 100% agree. Well, a lot of people have legitimacy in this country that don't deserve it, right? There's a lot of warlords left over from the the Civil War who are sitting very comfortable uh, being given government positions left and right. So unfortunately, this is nothing new. And Ali, that, that, this kind of ties into a question from Facebook that we had. Um, somebody asked, like, who's, who, um, who does the Taliban represent? Like, whose interests do they represent um, in Afghanistan? Like, they're, they're, I guess they're trying to understand the current nature of the Taliban. So this was a question from Facebook. So um, I don't know if you had a, a response to that. It's complicated, right? Because, yes, the, the Taliban is funded by Pakistan, it's funded by Iran, it's funded by other governments, it's funded by Russia. Um, that That's undeniable, um, and, and, and that's very obvious. This is why politicians keep saying it's an imposed war. Um, you know, like, we unfortunately have two of the worst neighbors in the world who are constantly interfering. Um, but there is, I mean, Hamid Karzai coined this phrase that I think actually does make a lot of sense. Um, brother on and not all is like disgruntled brothers. There are definitely some people who joined, you know, the Taliban movement because of injustices they saw, uh, because of um, uh, difficulties that they're facing, because of the fact that that, that issues affecting their lives were never addressed. Um, And how much they're actually tied to the central Taliban, that's another issue um, entirely. But, you know, there are people, because the government has failed in so many things, uh, that, that, that do turn to the Taliban for, you know, things as simple as justice. You know, like, if you have a land issue, it's much easier to go to the Taliban to get it resolved than it is to go the official government route, which could take years and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in bribes. Um, and there are people who feel like, you know, like, if you're constantly being droned, if, if you have night raids in your houses... If, 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 if your women and children are being killed and, and you have this group that's saying we're anti this and we can protect you from that, um, you know, that that's a legitimate concern. Um, and so this, this, this is it, it's a complicated issue because there's no entirely good side in it, to be quite honest. And, and I, go ahead, Yusuf. No, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to ask sort of what can be. You know, the Taliban and, and the U.S., right, are, are the ones that are having this conversation, and f- especially for those of us in the U.S. as a diaspora, like, what role do we play in these conversations? Like, I know for me, sometimes I'm kind of like, it's hard for me to, like, think to, like, have a say or a comment or anything, because I'm like, what, what, how, how, I don't, I don't, I'm, I didn't grow up there, I, I'm not from there, so, like, should I have a say, should I be involved, should I be, how invested should I be, so, um, I was wondering what you all think is sort of the diaspora's role in these in these talks and in these conversations that are happening. I think um, so. For me, it's like it's 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 something that I grapple with because on the one hand, I'm so invested in the peace and security um, of Afghanistan, but at the same time, I'm far removed from it as well. It's a country that I've never stepped foot in but love so dearly. And so um, part of, I think, the, the peace talks and the path to peace for, for the long term, for me personally, is amplifying voices within Afghanistan. So um, whether that's minority groups uh, who want specific asks um, that to come out of the peace talks, whether that's activists on the ground, 
um, or any any other way where you can just support someone or a group of people within Afghanistan itself. Um, the work that you know, some of the work that we did with the Af- Afghan diaspora for equality and progress was um, working in conjunction with Afghan women and amplifying their voice in terms of what they wanted and what they saw as a secure way to at least have women's rights in some fashion protected during these peace talks. And so that's, you know, whatever opinion you may have um, in terms of like sitting at the negotiating table with with the Taliban, um, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, if, if this specific marginalized group is asking or, or wants these types of things based on the situation that we're in, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the thing that you support and push for. So that's, that's one thing. And I think, um, just being in tune with how the U S government also responds to these talks and seeing if you can call your representatives, um, asking them to pay attention or asking them specifically, um, uh, about the talks, um, I think that can go a long way as well. Yeah, something Halima said like really resonated with me because like um, I disagree with it because she said you know uh, she made a point about how who is she, whereas I would say you more than Marco Rubio or Lindsey Graham or Ben Cardin or you know Bob and you have much more of a right, right? We have much more of a right, much more place and authority to say something. Right. And to engage. So I disagree with you, but I agree with you on that. Like, I, I think that absolutely like the people on this call and who are interested have a right Two, I think what ADEP does was really valuable because I think taking an approach to this issue by, by kind of framing it as multiple fronts in this battle, for lack of a better term, is important. And there is a front that that is the U.S. government and policy. And I think there's a level of sophistication that we're starting to see in our community about people engaging. Right. And I think that's really valuable because for me, it's about. It's not about whether the U.S. is there or there isn't, but it's like how much room there is there for their for growth, right? How comfortable do governments feel contributing and donors feel contributing, right? How much faith do they have to at least point about there not being corruption, right? And what can we do to support initiatives that kind of create um, more green space for like the good work to happen, right? So I think I, I think a lot of the the lobbying work, contacting representatives, like writing letters to people, I think it makes a difference because. Um, like you might catch someone on the right day and you might impact like a really small vote on a minor issue for a bill that has a footnote about a Afghanistan in there. But that footnote could be really, really, really significant, right, in terms of what happens on the ground. And what do you think? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, uh, are we going to go ahead, Halima? Oh, oh your mic is off. <laughs> you're on mute. Sorry. The very last thing I was going to say, just to Yusuf John's point, um, our ADEP does have an action guide. So if you are, if you want to reach out to your representative and you, you're not sure what to say, how to go about it, we do have an action guide on our website and it tells you, it gives you a script, what you can say, how to reach out. Um, so definitely check that out. Yeah. And I, I think just to echo what you guys are saying is we have to acknowledge that, um, first of all, if there was an answer, the solution, uh, I mean, our problem would be solved and we wouldn't be asking this question, right? But um, in that vein too, kind of the threads of what both you, Halima and Yusuf were saying is there's multiple fronts. And I think at the very least, um, if we have an emotional attachment to something, just like we have an emotional attachment to our families, you, it's kind of, um, I would implore us all to take some sort of action, whichever way you feel comfortable. So whether that's engaging with your Afghan American community your American community, your Afghan community in Afghanistan, whatever it may be, all three of these communities are symbiotically intertwined. And they're honestly like the different vessels to your heart. They're all a part of us in a way that you can't deny. So if we're not registered to vote, I think we're doing a disservice to Afghanistan. If we're not registered to vote here in the U.S., you know, if you don't feel comfortable voting for whatever reason, um, share a tweet from ADEP. I think we can all do things like that. Um, If you want to help your family in Afghanistan, go ahead and do something like that. But whatever it may be, wherever our comfort levels may lie, I think we, I would say that um, if we take no action, we are responsible. If we don't take any kind of action to any of these identities that we are privileged to be a part of, um, I guess apathy is the worst form of, uh, that's the worst thing that we could do. So anything that is 
a non-empathetic would be um, a good approach or at least a starting place to go. Yeah, and I, I would, I, I totally agree with that. And I would say like, uh, one, one of my hopes for us is that we move beyond outrage, right? Yeah. Because like a lot of people can be outraged, right? Um, but like what we, we probably can do more than be outraged, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think as a community, that's, that's the big question for me. It's like, how do we move beyond outrage? Right. And still keep our jobs and pay our rent and whatever we need to do. Right. Um, but but how do we move beyond that? And I think I mean, I really appreciate this conversation because, like, it's getting some gears turning. But, I, you know, I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Can I add one tiny action item? You know, it'd be really cool. And I don't know if this already exists or not. So I'm just asking the question out there. Is there like a website or anything out there that kind of coalesces together the different um, Afghan-American groups that are working on different issue matters because I think one problem that Afghans have is it's like ADEP is doing really cool stuff on um, civic engagement and political activism and all that kind of stuff. Some Afghans don't know about it. They go reinvent the wheel and try to do the same thing again instead mm -hmm. of us um, supporting one another and building off of each other by engaging with one another. So I wonder if TSN would uh, maybe spearhead that or if anyone has an answer to that, share it because I think we should do something, you know, whether it's on the AAC website, TSN, ADEP, whatever, some sort of platform where we can um, access what's out there just so we know where to get involved in. Did you just voluntold us, uh, Iman? <laughs> uh, I mean, sure I'm an action call out there. Could, I mean, I, I'm hoping that people will engage on Facebook and Twitter and all of that, and maybe we can see if anyone wants to. No. If anyone has the answer to that, tweet me. <laughs> I, I, no, and I and I would I would just say that like you know any as much as we can sort of come together and work together and collaborate and like do this stuff. I think that will like you know that that's as a Warriors fan, strength in numbers is always something dear to me. Um, so that is uh, you know something we can try 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 our best to do. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad that you know. Halima from, you know, Avian Diaspora for Equality Progress. ADEP has joined, joined this call, was able to kind of chat and tell us a lot about, you know, the work that they're doing, which is really awesome stuff. So, um, Ali, you're going to say something? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think the answer to your question is in front of you all. Like, every, every time I'm on one of these calls, I'm always so impressed. Like, I didn't know we had, you know, have gone all like this in the United States, you know, like a PhD in sociology or someone starting like, you know, like this, uh, like the social activism or like this political activism group or like in the media and all of that. So I think there has to be a way to take advantage of that. You know, I mean, you guys have a conference every year where like, I don't know, a thousand people or hundreds of people um, attend and you all have voices and you all have different ways that I'm not saying everybody has to go on CNN, but, you know, there's always news outlets and things like that looking for even small ones, local ones, you know, looking for someone to write something, looking for someone to say something, even if they're not looking, be the one to do it, you know, because uh, this is the problem is I feel like um, because think about it, like Trump has said a million ridiculous things about this country and it's the one issue that he could say anything he wants and the the Western media doesn't care, you know? Um, so, and, and, you know, every, everyone wants to be anti-Trump now. So you, you, you know, like you have this, this, this brilliant opportunity and this brilliant, and you have these brilliant people. Um, so I think each of you in your own way are already doing things and can be doing other sort of simple things to, to, to be the voice out there to, 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 to bring up these issues. And I think Ali kind of helps us kind of close out uh, this call of, of of talking about sort of what does bring all of us some some hope or some you know points of joy or whatever it may be when we look to Afghanistan. We talked earlier about how sometimes we look at it through this lens of uh, this deficit lens or this uh, lens of just like war and tragedy. So what what brings you all hope, whether it's in the diaspora or in Afghanistan, like you know in the ways that we can can support so Ali you kind of shared a little bit so we'd love to hear from other folks um I can kick that off I think in diaspora what gives me hope is um just the awareness that we I see increasingly increasing awareness about what's going on in the motherland and then in the motherland itself I think what gives me hope is the reporters 
the news invest news people that show up to work even though their stations get attacked the young people who are pushing the country um and hopefully steering it into the into the right direction so those just quickly those are the things that give me hope yeah i think um i'll just say uh since my contribution here is based off of living with Afghans and watching them all like a creep for 18 months and interviewing them like crazy, um, I would say, like? <laughs> <laughs> well, so see, that's the question I always get is what did you find? What did you see? And I say that's what gives me hope because the hallmark of what I saw is going back to the cheesy line I quoted um, earlier, Azardafa, the thing you hear every BB, every grandmother say a million times over, a thousand times over is the hallmark of Afghans, our love, passion, and generosity. And um, just seeing that thread and how persistent it is, and I would argue to say every single Afghan, whether I agree with their political viewpoints or their life perspectives or not, has had within them, is that love, passion, and generosity. And I hope that, if anything, we can continue that within our diaspora, within the Afghans that are born in Afghanistan, um, uh, just kind of, I, I guess that spirit, that's, that's what continues to give me hope because I see that alive in every TSN conversation and in every Afghan I've met, even the random ones you hear speaking daddy in the grocery store and you go up to, to say hi, just to feel like you're at home with. So. Yeah. And just briefly, I'll say, I agree with all of that um, from Ali, Halima and, and Iman. And I think just adding to that, um, like three things. One, I think in the diaspora, people are not afraid to be seen. And I grew up most of my life um, wanting not to be from Afghanistan and like, you know, my name being different, all that stuff. And, I, and I'm sensing a change and people are leveraging their positions, whether it's in academics or in art or in media or in policy. People are not hiding who they are and, and where they're from and why it matters. Uh, and the third thing I think is that um, I think there's like both enough on song from what I understand and here there is a refusal to accept the status quo among a significant amount of young people. And I think that's really, really valuable because um, I think like that relentlessness, even if we screw it up, even if we do it kind of sloppy and we get it wrong and, you know, we're not polished, I think a refusal to accept the status quo is something that I'm at least sensing. And that gives me a lot of hope because I think that's like the first required step for us to do better. Yeah. Thank you all for sharing. Um, I mean, for me, this call and seeing you all here again, sort of like what Ali was saying, is just what what brings me hope and what I'm I'm excited, always excited to to see and hear from all of you. So, um, thank you all for joining today. And uh, I know we took a lot of time. Ali, you woke up really early, so thank you for doing that. Um, so keep keep having these conversations. Please follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook, listen to our podcast on iTunes or wherever it may be. So please, please shoot us that like button, uh, listen to our work and please leave comments, questions, uh, anything you might have. Thank you all for joining us tonight and have a good night. Peace. Thanks. Bye.